0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is David Deutsch. David is a renowned physicist and philosopher, best known for his work on quantum computation and his contributions to the field of quantum mechanics. He's a fellow of the Royal Society and a visiting professor of physics at the University of Oxford. David has written two books called The Fabric of Reality and The Beginning of Infinity. In this episode, we talk about the purpose of science. We discuss the concept of an explanation and its crucial role in the scientific process. We examine the famous double-slit experiment. We discuss rival interpretations of quantum mechanics and what they imply about the nature of reality. We also talk about progress in physics and advances in artificial intelligence. So without further ado, David Deutsch. Okay, David Deutsch, thanks so much for coming on my show.
1: Thank you for inviting me and it's very pleasant to meet you.
0: Before we get into the the deep topics of science and philosophy and theoretical physics and the frontiers of human knowledge and scientific progress and all of the topics that you've dealt with professionally and have explained to the general public in your two great books, which are called The Fabric of Reality and The Beginning of Infinity, both of which I highly recommend. I just want to get a little bit about you. What, uh, How did you come to be a theoretical physicist and what have you focused on for most of your professional life?
1: I've wanted to be a physicist really for as long as I can remember, even definitely before I knew the word physics and uh, or the word physicist. I, I wanted to, and, and more specifically, I wanted to do research in theoretical physics. And so that's what I ended up doing. And I have a tendency to gravitate towards the more fundamental side of whatever I work on. And so uh, originally, I thought that was going to be quantum gravity. But uh, I found after uh, starting on a doctoral course, which was intended, which was entitled Quantum Gravity, because I kind of thought, uh, well, you know, I've got three years to do this, and how hard can it be? But uh, I never made any progress with quantum gravity. and But I very quickly realized, and it, this thought had been growing on me, even as, as an undergraduate, that there was something deeply wrong with quantum theory as we were taught it, and with quantum field theory as well. And so I turned in that direction. And fortunately, I I had a very accommodating boss, Dennis Sharma, uh, who was basically uh, wanting me to work on anything that I found interesting. And later, John Wheeler as well had the same attitude. And I I was working on various aspects of quantum theory, trying to clean them up. I, I was led to the many universes interpretation, the Everett. Everettian quantum theory, uh, as I would now like to call it, and then that led directly into quantum computers, and uh, and now more recently, I've I've uh, kind of stepped aside from quantum computers, quantum information research uh, into another direction that I'm hoping will be successful. It's called constructor theory, and it's basically um, a new way of formulating laws of physics which I hope will make certain puzzles and problems easier to solve.
0: Okay. So the audience of this podcast ranges from, you know, people that ha- are currently getting PhDs in physics to people that took no more than high school physics. So no doubt many people will know exactly what you mean when you said you thought you could solve quantum gravity in three years, and will sort of get the the joke inherent in that. But for those who don't, can you briefly explain what you mean when you said you wanted to uh, solve quantum gravity in three years and and failed to do so?
1: Yes, well, i I said that I'm attracted by the by the fundamental side of anything, and in physics, the most fundamental theories are quantum theory, which has the reputation of being about very, very small things, and general relativity, Einstein's theory which has the reputation of being about very large things like like galaxies and the whole universe as a whole. Now, actually, both of them are not limited in that way. Both of them, if they are true at all, if they were true at all, they would apply to the whole universe, uh, to every, everything physical. And yet they are incompatible with each other mathematically and conceptually. So quantum gravity is the name of the field of trying to unify these two most fundamental theories. And uh, the problem is still unsolved today. Uh, There are many ideas for solving it, which I now think with hindsight, very inadequate. And uh, we're going to need a lot of very good new ideas to address them.
0: I was going to ask this later, but uh, I'll ask it now. From my point of view, I've seen a decline in progress in physics over the past century. So for instance, if you were born in the year 1900, you would have been, you know in your 30s when Einstein made his most famous discoveries about general relativity and special relativity and the curvature of space-time and all those incredibly interesting concepts and improvements on Newtonian physics. And then you would have been, you know in middle age for some of the for the discovery of quantum mechanics as we know it today. But you know, if you were born around 2000 or in the, in the mid-90s as I was, you, I notice a distinct lack of those paradigm shifting explanation, explanations in my lifetime and really in the 50 years preceding my lifetime. Would you agree that physics has slowed down or halted in terms of its progress in explaining the world? And if you agree, why is that?
1: I think progress has definitely slowed down, not just in physics, but uh, I should say not just in fundamental physics, because there, have been, there has been a lot of progress. You know, lasers were invented in that time and space travel and computers and, and so on. But fundamental physics, yes, has definitely slowed down during that period. And there are various theories about why this is. It's not just physics, I said. Uh, other fields, philosophy, slowed down uh, even more. You might say, apart from Karl Popper, and there are theories about why this is. One that I, I that I find particularly unconvincing is the low-hanging fruit theory, which is that in 1900 there were lots of pro- there was lots of progress to be made that was relatively easy. So if you were interested in that sort of thing and you knew just enough mathematics, then you would solve things. And they they solved things in, in 1900 and 1905 and, and 1913 and 15 and, and so on. I think that is completely absurd. First of all, fundamental physics is definitely more problematic today than it was in 1900. In 1900, many people thought that all that was left in physics was to dot the I's and cross the T's, just just a few um, minor anomalies to clear up, if that, even if they if they needed clearing up at all. And on the other hand, the mathematics that was needed in both relativity and quantum theory was not known to the physicists who solved it. They They encountered the problems. They learned the mathematics in order to solve the problem. It's not that they had gone through an undergraduate course where they were taught how to how to do dozens of problems in that that would come up because nobody knew that um, nobody knew in 1900 uh, physics of Riemannian manifolds. Sorry, that the mathematics of Riemannian manifolds would be would be of use to physics, and so it wasn't in physics courses. Uh, and what happened was that there were people who were interested in solving problems. They found the problems, even though there were fewer of them, far fewer of them than today. They worked on them with enthusiasm, and they did they did whatever was necessary to solve them. There were there were relatively few of these physicists. You know, I have on my wall a picture of the Solvay Conference of whenever it was, uh, 1913 or something. I, I forget, but anyway, near the beginning of the century. And those were more or less all the physicists that were around at that time. If you look at the picture, they've got all they've they've got labels. You know, many of them won Nobel prizes. Many of the people in that picture won Nobel prizes. Uh, many of them are I won't say household names, but they they are names. Things were named after those people. So every everybody who studies physics gets to know those names as names of things today. There are thousands of times more physicists than that. But so what's the difference? If it's not the low hanging fruit theory, what is it? Well, I think it is simply physics education. In 1900, there was, there was, uh, physics was not a standard subject. There was a subject, science, that was maybe taught in schools. And, uh, but uh, I think when, even when Einstein first came to America, the newspapers uh, refer to him as the famous mathematician Einstein. Physics wasn't a wasn't a thing; only specialists had even heard of it, really. Whereas now there is a physics career, which you start even in school when you're when you're designated as maybe you'd like to study, or men maybe maybe you're clever enough or something uh, to study physics at university, and so you do the exams, and then you go to university and you do the exams there. You're taught a curriculum. You are taught the problems that you are supposed to be addressing. And, and none of these problems are fundamental. The problems you're supposed to be addressing are all incremental. So, And then you get a doctorate. By the way, you know many of these early people had worked on, on the problems that they were going to solve independently as undergraduates. Uh, and so on. There there wasn't a recognized path into physics, which involved getting a doctorate. Anyway, so now once you have a doctorate, you have to get a postdoc position. And for that, you need a grant. And for grant, you need a grant application. And this grant application always includes a statement of what you are going to discover. Now, that is fatal to genuine research, because genuine research at the foundational level and and I would say largely at any level but definitely at the foundational level uh, is incompatible with knowing what you're going to discover so uh, because it's an o- a discovery is an open-ended problem-solving process and the the problem the, the first problem you address isn't going to be the one that is your discovery at the end of n years or whatever it is It's just the beginning. And I always say of of, um, graduate students, beginning graduate students, that if they're not totally confused by the end of their first year or second year, they're not doing it right. And yet, at the end of their first year, they must now, in, in most universities, produce a document of what they have discovered in the first year and how they're going to develop this and how they're going to have completed it in the third year. So the whole this, this whole attitude is inimical to fundamental research. And I don't know whether it alone is responsible for the slowdown, but it's certainly a heavy burden on a researcher. And it would have been a heavy burden on those people in 1900. I don't know if any of them would have succeeded if they had gone through that kind of education.
0: Do you think it's possible that reconciling quantum theory and uh, the theory of gravity is just inherently a harder problem than having figured out either one of them?
1: I'm sure it isn't. And the reason I'm sure is that the enormous amounts of mathematics that have been devoted to attempting to solve this problem have not got anywhere. That is, not only have they not solved it, they haven't made progress in understanding what the problem is. They haven't made the problem harder. They haven't made it connected it with other things. And on the other hand, the problems that I see with quantum gravity are all physical, or you might say conceptual. They're all about the worldview that quantum theory invites us to adopt in order to understand the world and the worldview that relativity invites us to adopt. They are fundamentally at odds with each other. Now, you, you may ask me, what exactly is the incompatibility between them? That is very hard to put into words. In fact, that is the problem, that this is very hard to put into words. We learn, as professional physicists, to change gear when we're thinking, between, when we're thinking in a quantum way or whether we're thinking in a, in a relativity way. Uh, We change gear, but there is no smooth transition between the two. The best I can say, I I think, if you were to ask me that, is that gravity is about space-time. Space-time is about where and when things happen. Quantum theory is about multiple realities. It's about the way way that many different things happen at the same time. And if many different space-times happen at the same time, if gravity is different in different universes, then there, is, there can be no such thing as where a thing is. And then if you, if you say, for example, the sun produces an effect on space-time which affects a planet, if there's more than one space-time, then it will affect the planet in more than one way, and the, the planet in turn will affect the sun in more than one way. And there is no way of reconciling called the back reaction problem although that rather understates it but there is no way of reconciling the multiplicity of possible positions of the planet its multiplicity of effects it has on the on the sun and then the multiplied multiplicity that that has the effect that that has on the planet again so i'm trying to think about gravity in a quantum way by in explaining this and trying to um it crashes it breaks down and i didn't have to Say anything mathematical. I mean, when I'm trying to explain this, I'm not thinking that certain tensor isn't equal to another tensor. That's not the nature of the problem.
0: I want to give people the tools to understand exactly how interesting and strange this is. So in order to do that, I want to hit the pause button on quantum mechanics and, and relativity for a moment and reverse back to the primacy of explanations in science, which is something you've written a lot about. So just to to frame this, human beings have been around for, you know, well over a hundred thousand years, beginning on the African savannah and and inhabiting the rest of the earth. And always we've had an inquisitive mind about why things are happening, right? We have a thirst to understand, if only to survive and to thrive when we see a new kind of animal we want to learn how it behaves we want to come up with a kind of implicit theory that helps us predict the world around us so that we can survive we want to predict the people around us so we want to predict the environment around us so that we can you know change it to our advantage manipulate it to our advantage it's just a part of what it is to be a human a few hundred years ago there was you could say there was a kind of break in history or there's a fundamental change, which is often called the scientific revolution. Can you describe the significance of the scientific way of thinking, how it differed from the past 100,000 or more years of human curiosity and why that has led to so much progress and perhaps include in there your explanation of what an explanation is and why that is Prime of prime importance in scientific thinking.
1: Well, I see the scientific revolution as part of a wider intellectual movement, often called the Enlightenment. Although there are two branches of the Enlightenment, and only one of them is related to the scientific revolution. But um, if we go back to two hundred thousand years, or quite possibly as long as two million years ago, with species before. Homo sapiens, something happened there, uh, which is the beginning of everything else that we find good. You said that there are animals that are curious. Our ancestors, apes, ape-like creatures, before this thing happened, you know, maybe two million years ago, maybe 200,000, but they were curious. Monkeys are famously curious. Puppies are curious. But what's called curious in those animals is different from what's called curious in humans. Um, it, it just has the same name because people have a, a, a wrong idea about what humans are. An animal which is curious is uh, has a built-in impulse, genetically built-in impulse, to investigate novelty in its environment, a, a thing that it hasn't seen before. So if it, if, it, if, if it has seen it before, it doesn't go and investigate it. If it has, then it goes to investigate it and different animals have different amounts of this some some have basically none of this but some some are very curious and this obviously has a danger but it also has a benefit in that they can become familiar with something before it's dangerous but humans are completely different humans can are attracted to going out to investigate familiar things the first things that humans Tried to explain that we know of are the lights in the sky, the most familiar things in our environment, the the most constant things in our environment, the sun, the moon, the stars. People were thinking about them. Why? Because although they were perfectly familiar, they weren't well explained. They posed problems of understanding. For example, what makes them go up into the sky? and comes down again. Why don't they fall down? Uh, What fuels them? Everything else that emits heat or light runs out of fuel. They don't. Everything else is affected by things like the weather and so on. They are not. They're they're completely immune. Now, how do we explain that? People try to explain this. Well, we only have records uh, by definition going back to historic times. But I bet that in prehistoric times, People wondered about that as well. And I think when they, when they invented things like campfires, they weren't using that animal-type curiosity. They were using the human-type curiosity when they invented the campfire um, or a better method of hunting. or Whenever they made an improvement, they were trying to improve familiar things or to change familiar things to solve a problem. Now, I I said that the lights in the sky were unexplained. What I mean by that is not just that they couldn't predict them. In fact, it's pretty easy to predict that the sun is going to rise every day and that the seasons are going to come, come along one after the other. In order to go further than that, you need to have a working model of the world that you want to explain in your mind. And that has to not just predict, it has to correspond to the reality. So when you're interested in, in whether the seasons are coming because you've planted a crop or whatever, you, it would be good to know when it's coming. And once you do that, you have to guess that there's going to be a solstice. You have to w- wonder about things about the sun, which are not obviously related to your crops. And that story, that story that corresponds to reality, that's explanation. And uh, I, along with uh, following Karl Popper, think that uh, explanation is, seeking explanations is the essence of science and that seeking agreement with experiment is merely one of the methods of science. Having a predictive theory about the sun rising every day is not going to take you to the theory of solstices. To take you to the theory of solstices, you have to observe not just the sun rising and setting every day, you have to observe some other mystery, the mystery about a familiar thing. Namely, for example, the sun doesn't get as high in the sky sometimes as a year. I, I say <laughs> that in words. That wouldn't... that. To say at some times of the year is already a guess about reality. It's not, it didn't arise at first as an observation. It arose at first as a guess about what reality is like, that it's at different times of the year rather than when the trees are doing so-and-so or when the animals are doing so-and-so or when it's colder or hotter. No, to get to the idea of a solstice, you have to be curious about the sun. The actual sun, not just observations of it.
0: So this is useful to, to understand why this is significant. It's useful to contrast this with the view that scientific theories are just about predicting reality. So there is a, a view which was long popular among philosophers and still is subscribed to by some today, which says that basically what science is doing is we're going out into the world collecting data how whatever that means maybe i'm looking through a telescope maybe i'm you know picking up ants and p- putting them in jars once i collect enough data that data becomes a theory about whether it's about the motion of the sun and the planets or about electricity and now that theory makes predictions and i run experiments i see if those predictions are correct and the more correct predictions it makes, uh, the more data "quote unquote" validates the theory. The higher and higher and higher my confidence gets in that theory, to the point where I say I pretty much know that this is true. And that's and your concept of explanations on this view, explanations for why the theory works, what is the fundamental reality, what really makes it tick. I can tell myself pretty much any story that I would like to tell myself. But the story is not really the point. The why is not the point. The point is I can predict that the sun is going to be there at this particular time and tell yourself any story you would like about why that is. As so long as the predictions keep coming back right, my scientific theory has done its full job. What is wrong with that picture of a scientific theory?
1: Practically every, uh, first of all, What you've just described is the common... It's not just um, a common philosophical theory, common philosophical error. It's the common sense theory of knowledge and how we interact with the world and how we obtain knowledge. Common sense says that we see things happening, then predict that they will happen again. And then optionally, we may add an explanation of what makes them happen. Now, it's, it's, it's hard to get one's mind around the fact that this is nothing like what happens in reality. No one ever does that. No one ever goes out and looks at the sun rising in the morning again and again. For a start, it doesn't. When it's cloudy, you don't see the sun rising. The regularity that even in this crudest, most, most frequently cited example of regularities, that reg uh, is simply a, is that regularity is only recognizable with hindsight once you have at least some kind of explanation for example that the sun is still there even when it's behind a cloud that the sun is still there even when i'm not looking at it and most importantly the sun is still there at night because only then does it make sense to say that there has been a repetition of anything the sun sets and then later the sun comes up again so that that is a second instance of having seen the sun that's another theory that's not a thing that you observe it's a it's a uh, it's a guess that you make and then after guessing you can test it you can test it on the next day and then the ancient myths about the celestial objects all assume that the objects are still the same when they reappear. Nobody has that theory about clouds. Let's say they don't say, you know, when a, when a cloud goes away, if it rains again the next day and there's a cloud, that'll be the same cloud, which has sort of changed its shape a little and uh, now resembles a different animal. No one ever thought that because, uh, and they were right. They no animal ever does this. No animal cares. Where the sun is, or even that the sun is. As for the future, you know, uh, using it to predict the future. In fact, the future is never the same as the past. That that's another the same problem again. When we say that the future that, that that we think the sun is going to come up because it's come up in the past, and the future is going to be like the past, called the inductive hypothesis. Um, the it is not the case that the most things we see around us are different from day to day from minute to minute i'm sitting in front of a computer an hour ago i was not if i if i had predicted that because i'm not sitting in front of a computer now i won't be in an hour's time i would have been wrong what distinguishes those predictions of things being the same from the from the predictions of things being different that cannot be induced from having seen it before because this particular thing has never been seen before nor has any particular thing been seen before we have to have a guess that it's that it's going to be the same because of the nature of what it is i have a theory of why this computer is here and why i'm going to be sitting in front of it that's that wasn't obtained by induction either wasn't it being obtained by thinking of this event having happened before you might say yes but Animals do this if you if you feed the dog at a certain time of day then it salivates uh, you know, when, when you ring a bell or something then it salivates. that is because genetic expectations have already um, been tuned to a particular regularity such as when to find food, where to find food. like I said, humans can look at a familiar thing and because of their explanation of it they can they can predict. That, that familiar thing is going to be different from now on. Animals can't do that. By the way, computers can't do that yet either. One day they will be able to. But that's the difference between having an explanatory theory and having a purely predictive theory. In when we have a predictive theory, it's it's always because we are kind of gaslighting ourselves into forgetting that we or someone else in the past had to guess that regularity before they had the data.
0: So one problem with the purely predictive picture of science is that often the same data can be compatible with two different models of how the system is working. And you give the example in one of your books, which is a, a very interesting historic example of Galileo's discovery and advocacy of the heliocentric theory of of our solar system namely that the earth is not the center of our solar system the sun is and the earth is simply a planet revolving around it the as you say in your book the catholic church the inquisition had a competing theory which was the official line of the day and which was something you were not supposed to contradict which was that the earth was actually the center of the solar system and everything rotated, revolved around the Earth in just such a way so that it looks as if the sun is at the center of the solar system. That was their theory of why it looked so much like the sun was at the center. That basically the earth was at the center, but just in such a way that everything revolved around it. So as to create this superficial illusion that the sun was at the center. So what you notice about the Inquisition's theory and Galileo's theory is that they, by and large, predict the exact same sensory data, right? They predict that Mars will be exactly where in the same place when you look at it through a telescope at any given time. So how do you choose between two different explanations that predict the same data? There must be some criterion. What is that criterion?
1: Again, if you think of the purpose of science as explanation rather than predicting data, then the first thing you have to do before you even look at the data is examine the theory to see whether it's an explanation whether it's a good explanation so for example part of the inquisitions position was that the as you said the motions of the planets and the sun and the moon are exactly such as they would be if the earth was going around the sun but in fact it's not now the thing about that kind of theory is that it can be used to explain anything the flat earth people explain all observations about the Earth, including satellites and space travel and so on, with exactly that philosophical move. They say the Earth is in fact flat, but light moves in curves and the orbits of of, uh, the Moon and and, uh, other other things move in exactly such curves as to make them appear as if the earth were moving uh, about its axis and around the sun so that i have called that kind of that that move that that uh, rhetorical move a bad explanation because it can be used to explain anything uh, i think something that can be used to explain anything actually explains nothing so when we when we try to explain try and form a scientific theory about something we have to first get a good explanation, and only then can we test it. But in fact, we can't test it even then. Because in reality, as people have pointed out, Duham and Quine pointed out, that, that you can always say, you can always make a slightly different move and say in, in, for a scientific theory, that it's, the, it's an experimental error, that it only looks as though it's conforming to the theory But in fact, it's there's a different theory, and this actually holds true. And this is true. You can always do this. Moreover, you should do this. If you only have one explanation, then uh, and uh, the observation violates it, it's simply not the case. That scientists or detectives or anyone who's trying to find the truth changes their theory just because they find a counterexample. It's overwhelmingly likely, that more likely, that the counterexample is wrong than that the theory is wrong, if it's a good theory, if it's a good explanation. So the example I give in, in my book is a few years ago, an experiment um, with particle accelerator seemed to show that neutrinos were traveling faster than light and they announced it to the press, and there was a sensation about this, and people were wondering, you know, have they proved Einstein wrong? Now, they should have known, everyone should have known that this is absurd. You can't conclude that something travels faster than light unless you have an explanation of how. You have to have a rival explanation to general relativity to explain how the neutrino can travel faster than light when nothing else can. It's not the inability to travel faster than light, according to relativity theory, is not an intrinsic property of light or neutrinos. It's a property of space-time, as is gravity altogether. And so when you say, you, you can't say that, that uh, light travels around curved space uh, because, the, uh, because it's traveling in, in, in a straight line from its own point of view, but the neutrinos don't. That doesn't make sense. The the, the curvature of space time either is or isn't the explanation of gravity. So the first the the reasonable conclusion from the result of the neutrino traveling faster than light is experimental error. And in real life, again, experiments in physics are hard. Errors happen all the time, and uh, we generally detect errors precisely because Something happens which the theory says can't happen. When people discover a new phenomenon, it's when they've ruled out as much as they can that the theory is true, and they have invented a candidate for a better explanation. If you have two explanations, you can use experiments to perform a crucial test. That's what the philosophers call it, uh, uh, a crucial test between the theories where one of them predicts one thing, another one predicts a a different thing. Then you can test the two explanations. If you have one explanation and just a rival prediction, like neutrinos travel faster than light, um, you can't test that. The, The theory that it was an experimental error will always be better. What would happen if neutrinos really could travel faster than light is that this would worry people. The results of the experiment would worry people. And they would start making up alternative explanations of not only how neutrinos work, but how everything else works light, gravity, and so on. Somebody would come up with a rival explanation. It too would first be tested to see whether it was tested theoretically to see whether it was a good explanation. And then they could modify the apparatus to distinguish between those two explanations. In the event, Uh, It never got that far because they found that the reason was a loose optical cable.
0: So there's another key thing for people to understand here, which is called, usually called levels of explanation in philosophy of science. This is, you know, so sometimes you'll get people saying things like, am I a human being or am I just a collection of atoms? As if those are two alternatives, mutually exclusive alternatives, where I can only be one or I can only be the other. You know, another way of conceptualizing this is, you know, if I ask you to explain the Great Depression only by referencing the motion of atoms. Uh, it would strike you as a as a nonsense question, although in some way it, it can make sense because the Great Recession was a collection of atoms moving; those atoms being in my body, in dollar bills that were coming out of banks, and so forth. But and. You know, whatever explanation you gave about the, the Great Depression or whatever I said, Great Recession, whatever ex- explanation you gave would have to be compatible with the laws of physics, right? If you were to explain to me what a run on the bank is, nothing in your theory of what a bank run is can violate quantum mechanics and nothing will, but it's also an explanation occurring at a totally different level level, right? You're, the units you're talking about are human beings and motives and self-interest and money, whereas the units of physicist is talking about are atoms or, or subatomic particles. And yet, at some level, you're describing the same thing. You're not describing two different universes. You're using two different languages to describe the same thing. So can you talk about how, how do you think of levels of explanation in our universe?
1: There are two different problems. The Suppose you did somehow magically have access to a to a giant computer provided by aliens that that could simulate the motion of all the atoms on Earth. You uh, fed it with the data uh of, of before the Great Depression, and it would suppose it, it predicted that there would be a Great Depression after after this. And that would not explain the Great Depression. That would not even begin to explain it. It would merely predict it. And Although there is a description of you as a collection of atoms and a description of you as a human being, it's perfectly possible that there is no explanation of you as a bunch of atoms, only an explanation of you as a human being. Because it may be that even if you followed through the motion of all those atoms and you ended up with a prediction of exactly what you will do, you still wouldn't have explained anything. It, you wouldn't have learned anything about what caused your behavior or the advent of the of the great depression or whatever this This idea that a real explanation or a real theory has to be about microscopic things, and that everything everything about higher level things like like humans and and economies. Is just a crude way of referring to atoms. It's just a prejudice. It's a philosophical prejudice that comes from, you know, maybe it's physics envy, as some people say, or maybe it's a misplaced empiricism, or maybe it's just a historical tradition that for some time really excellent explanations emerge from studies of microscopic things. But whatever it is, it's wrong. There is there is no fundamental reason why an explanation has to exist at a particular level of size uh, of, of atoms uh, or people or whatever. The On the contrary, there is every reason to believe, even within physics, that uh, explanations and higher levels and lower levels have a, a, an equal status and course, they're not allowed to conflict with each other at any level. They're not allowed to conflict with each other at the high level or the low level, but there may not be an explanation at a low level, just like there may not be an explanation at a high level either. It, it's just a, a matter of what the best.
0: Yeah. Why is it that lower level theories and, and by lower, we we don't mean lower in status. We mean dealing, generally we mean dealing dealing with smaller units. Why does a lower level theory like physics seem to have so much more predictive power than a higher level theory like economics to choose something, right? Like It seems like physicists can predict exactly where a particle is going to be to to the smallest unit of measurement of the universe, but economists can't predict anything. And then there's, there's not any, I would say they can't predict anything, but their predictions are far less reliable. And then you have things in between like biology, which seems like biologists can sometimes Predict, you know, with more precision than economists, but certainly not with the precision of physics. So why isn't it the case that the more predictive power and precision you have, the better your level of explanation?
1: The main reason is that the one cannot predict the growth of knowledge. When you are trying to predict, predict the economy or the behavior of a human, you are trying to predict what knowledge that system is going to create in the future and predicting the growth of knowledge as Karl Popper taught us is fundamentally impossible so the more the phenomenon that you're trying to predict depends on the future of growth of knowledge the less predictable it is so that's one that's one difference that's one huge difference certain things are fundamentally unpredictable because if we knew what, The price of gold is going to be in a year's time. It wouldn't be that because if people could know that, they would make uh, investment decisions that would make that prediction not happen. The other thing is that it's a bit of a mirage to say that physics can predict everything very accurately. We know, as a matter of theory, theory, explanatory theory only, that every air molecule in this room exactly obeys. An equation that we can write down, but we can't do an experiment on most of the implications of that equation. To do an experiment with a precise outcome that we can measure and make a prediction that we can then test, we have to go to enormous lengths to make the experimental conditions single out the prediction that we want to make. That's why I said earlier, doing physics experiments is hard. So a, a physics experiment in the labor- in laboratory has an optical bench which is insulated against uh, possible vibrations from lorries outside and from earthquakes, if possible, and so on. And the, the lighting is uh, made so that it can't interfere with the sensitive photo detectors, uh, so the main lighting is off and, the, the, and so on. And the, the laser uh, shines a light which is stabilized exactly to a particular frequency uh, being controlled by a computer that keeps it at that frequency. If any of those things goes wrong, the outcome will be wrong. And, and people won't say, oh, well, their quantum mechanics is false. No, they'll say, oh, one of our precautions you know, hasn't worked properly. Let, let's let's uh, think very carefully what might have gone wrong. I remember a few years ago, I went to see a beautiful experiment being done by people with doing an experiment on ion traps, which are traps which trap a single ion, a single charged atom inside the apparatus being held in place by magnetic and electric fields. And they could manipulate that atom to increase its electron energy up to a certain level, then down and, and measure that. And so on. And suddenly it stopped working. And I, I, I was amazed that, you know, the because when I went to university, I was told that we'll never be able to do experiments on single atoms. But now it's commonplace. I, I said, you know, it suddenly stopped. And I said, um, what's happened? And they said, oh, well, probably an air molecule hit it. Well, this whole thing was being done inside a high vacuum. But what we call a high vacuum still has millions of air molecules in it. And sooner or later, One of them hits the ion, and that's the end of the experiment. And you've got to work hard to reduce that. And if you can't reduce it any further, how to work with it so that the thing that you measure is not affected by the perturbations caused by air molecules. So it's not really true that physics can predict things with very high precision. It can predict things with with very high precision that are very carefully prepared so as to be predictable.
0: Okay. So now that we've laid the groundwork with the primacy of explanations in science, the fact that science is not just about predicting the world, it's about explaining the world and predictions help us do that, uh, help us choose between competing explanations. And we've we've understood that there are different levels of explanations which are compatible with each other, but none of them are second class insofar as they're good explanations at their level. I want to talk a little bit about your interpretation of quantum mechanics, uh, which is you're, you're a an advocate of the many worlds or the Everett interpretation of quantum mechanics, which competes against mostly the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. Now, just to be clear, these are two different explanations for the same data, the same experimental result. And that experimental result uh, is often called the double slit experiment. Many people will remember this from whatever physics course they, they've taken in life, but it's the double slit experiment is one of the strangest results that any scientific experiment has ever yielded in the history of, of human experience on planet Earth. It's one of the most deeply counterintuitive, uh, strange results that, that it, it essentially feels like you're watching, you're a child watching a magic trick and the, the, you've checked every possible way that the magician could be deceiving you and he is not deceiving you in that way. So it seems actually like pure magic, like real magic. Uh, And, and the basic, it's, it's difficult to describe just in an audio form, but I would encourage you to look up any five minute YouTube explanation of the double slit experiment if you haven't seen it. But at the most basic level, you know, particles can either behave like particles or like waves. And very simply, when something behaves like a particle, it's, it's like you're throwing a baseball through a hole behaves exactly the way you think it just goes through the hole and ends up on the other side when it behaves like a wave it's like spraying it's like spraying water through a hole that that is much too small it diffuses on the other side like a wave so if you imagine a baseball that certain times it's thrown through a hole behaves like a baseball Other times it's thrown through a hole, behaves like water. And whether it behaves the first way or the other way uh, seems to depend on whether you're looking at it, whether you're observing it. None of it makes any sense. Uh, So my question here is, Can you? do you have a simple way of explaining what the double slit experiment is? I know it's a very tough and long thing to explain, but you've been doing this for years. So presumably, what is the simplest way for you to explain to a smart but uninformed person, what the hell is the double slit experiment? And what are the competing explanations for how the hell and why the hell it works that way?
1: When people go and look this up on the internet, they should look for the single particle or single photon double slit experiment. Because if you imagine a torrent of photons going through the the double slits, that doesn't rule out some pedestrian ways in which the conjurer might be deceiving you. So just imagine one photon at a time, particle of light, but it can be done with other particles as well, electrons, neutrons, whatever. So one particle heads towards the two slits. And what do you see on the other side? You, you have a screen with an amplifier or, something, or, or uh, something that tells you where the photon lands on the screen beyond the slits. Uh, and uh, as you say, if if the photon were not quantum mechanical, if it if it were uh, if it behaved like um, particles in our everyday experience, then you would see a shadow. You would you would see a, uh, a slit shaped shadow if you uh, added up all the. It, if each time it landed, it produced a mark, then you would see a shadow where uh, a shadow of the barrier. So that where the slits were, the, the photon sometimes lands. And where there's, there's, where there's a barrier and no slit, it, there's just a shadow. So these, these shadows, there's a shadow with, there would be a shadow with two holes. And indeed, if you, if you have big holes and, and a lot of light, that's exactly what you do see. Like if I hold up my fingers and, and have a lamp, then I will see a shadow of my hand with the same number of fingers. As I have holding up part of the light, preventing part of the light from reaching the screen. But if we have a small screen with with slits, and when I say small, I don't mean atom size. You can do this experiment yourself if you have uh, just a needle and uh, a laser pointer, and you make needle size holes. Now, needle size holes are millions of times as as big as an atom or as a photon. So this is not microscopic. You can do this in your own home. You can do this experiment. It's hard to do it with single photons because our eyes are not sensitive enough for single photons. But, you know, you you just have to take my word for it that you get exactly the same results if you use single photons and photomultipliers to detect them. Now, what happens when you you do it with single photons is that once the slits get close enough together and are, are narrow enough, you no longer get a shadow of the slits. You, you no longer get what you would get if you just put your fingers in the way. Instead, you get a completely different pattern. Never mind what the pattern is. It's called an interference pattern, but it doesn't matter what the pattern is. They're beautiful patterns. If you, if you make two holes, by the way, it's called double slit experiment. It's easier to do it with holes, just a double hole experiment. You, you put a needle or a pin through a card. And, and then shine your laser pointer at it. Switch the lights off a couple of meters away, put a screen, and you, you can do this experiment yourself. The strangest thing in the world. So you see uh, uh, an amazing pattern. Make a third hole. You see a different pattern, different pattern, and and four holes, yet another pattern. The patterns depend on the the pattern that you see on the screen depends on the pattern of holes. And then you notice... An, so... The fact that it's not a shadow of the holes that you've made—that's that's one amazing thing already, because it shows that something is going through all the holes at the same time, even though you're only uh, sending one photon there. But the um, the more amazing thing, and this is the sort of the icing on the cake, is that there will be places on the final screen that receive photons when there is only one hole there. And go dark when there are two holes. And there are other places on the screen that, that are, uh, receive photons are, are bright when there are two holes and go dark when there are three holes. Now, that means that something, that, that sh- shows you that something is going through all the holes at the same time. Because if it only went through one of the holes... It couldn't detect that the other holes, whether the other holes were there or not. So something is traveling through each of the holes. No matter how many holes you put there, as long as you do this experiment carefully enough, you, the, the same phenomenon happens. Open up a new hole and some place on the screen goes dark. So that no shadow is like that. You can't do that with shadows of your hand. So with quantum mechanics, you can predict this. with uh, With any version of quantum mechanics, with any interpretation, the standard interpretation what what you called the copenhagen interpretation though i think that's probably uh, not historically accurate but it's often called the copenhagen interpretation anyway with the standard interpretation you can predict it but if you ask how the photon got from the laser to the to the place where it landed you will be told you're not allowed to ask that question this is a sure sign of the wool being pulled over your eyes this cannot be the case that the explanation of something is that you're not allowed to ask the question. So, what is the answer? Well, sometimes people say, well, it, the, the particle is sometimes a wave and sometimes a particle. That won't do because whenever you put the photomultiplier anywhere before the screen, at the screen, at the holes, after the holes, at the final screen, wherever you put it, when you put one photon through, you only ever detect one photon. So, if there was some phenomenon of the photon becoming a wave going through the holes then going back to being a particle if there was some phenomenon like that then sometimes you would see a quarter of a photon when you had four holes sometimes you'd see half a photon but you don't you when when you send in one photon at a time the detector only ever detects one photon it's just a matter of where it detects it the everett interpretation is that Whenever you do this experiment with a photon, there are large number of copies of you also doing the same experiment, and they're also sending photons through in other universes. And these photons, unlike you and the copies of you in other universes, the photons actually interact with each other. The ones from different universes interact with each other, and they go through all the holes at the same time. And when they get to the, to the far end, to, the, to where the screen is, or the photomultiplier, they are interacting with each other. And so they can detect that they are affected by what the other instances of them were doing. So interference is explained as the effect of other instances of the photon in other universes on each other. This is the basis of quantum computation. In quantum computation, it's not photons; it's the states of atoms or whatever, or whatever they're doing, or ions or whatever they're doing the experiment or building the quantum computer with. You, you can you can arrange things so that just as the photon could go through one of, let's say, four holes, the computation, the, the computer, uh, can be performing one of four different computations or one of 2 to the 4 different computations because there are 2 to the 4 possible ways that a photon can either go through or not go through a hole. So if you had 100 atoms and each and you set these 100 atoms to be doing all di- doing different computations, it w- they would actually be be doing 2 to the power of 100 different computations, one for each possible configuration of the atoms. You know, all zeros then a one, all zeros then a one, then a zero, uh, and, and so on. So there are two to the power of 100 ways of setting 100 bits. And if you then run a computation, there are two to the power of 100 computations going on. And then you can arrange for those to interfere with each other and produce a final answer that depends on all of them. And that's how quantum computers work. So I've, I've told you about two different quantum phenomena, both of which are amazing.
0: How is it that the other versions of you in parallel universes, what is the explanation of why the particles can interact between universes, but I have no interaction with my other selves?
1: You do have interaction with the other selves, but unfortunately you also have interaction with lots of other things like air molecules. And the, it, it, if the photons in the two-hole, two-slit experiment interact with something else, on the way, then they're no longer interacting with each other, or rather, their interactions with each other are then different in such a way that you don't get interference between them. So interference is prevented by these things in, in different universes acting with uh, interacting with something else. That's called decoherence. So once decoherence has occurred, interference won't occur. So when there's a large object like a human we're decohering all the time. Billions and billions of decoherence processes are going on. And so the interference between our, ourselves and the other instances of us is suppressed. And that's why we can't see them. But if uh, I, I proposed a thought experiment where a in, in a quantum computer, if you could run an artificial intelligence, an AGI, artificial general intelligence, on that quantum computer it could easily detect other instances of itself. And one day when we have AGI and also quantum computers, neither of which we have at the moment, um, then we will be able to do that experiment.
0: So this pivots perfectly into my next topic, which is artificial intelligence. This is something you've written about um, uh, in your book, The Beginning of Infinity, which you wrote importantly before the era of chat GPT Mid Journey, Dolly 2, Music LM, and all of the other language model artificial intelligences that have sprung onto the scene in the past, let's say, six months. So I I know that you have thoughts about the significance of the Turing test, whether that is actually a good test for artificial intelligence properly understood. So let me just put that to you. Um, Does... Is ChatGPT an artificial intelligence or is it just some kind of clever program that has passed the, the original version of the Turing test? What do you make of our current progress on AI?
1: I think to, to speak about this clearly, one has to distinguish between two completely different kinds of software. One of them called AI Called artificial intelligence, where the the word intelligence is really um, slightly misused, and and artificial general intelligence (AGI), where the uh, word intelligence would be properly used. Um, AGI is general intelligence. That, that is, it it is a form of computation as with the, with the same abilities as the uh, computational abilities as the human brain, or to be more precise as the program in a human brain the program in a human brain is an arti- is is a general intelligence not artificial and we could uh, make such a program artificially one day we will and that would be an artificial general intelligence the programs uh, um, so at present we have absolutely no idea how to make an agi we will one day but i'm afraid that at present everybody working on this thinks that an AGI is just a more powerful AI. And in my view, uh, so for example, uh, GPT and that sort of thing are all AIs. None of them is even remotely an AGI. What's more, programming an AGI is considered as a programming task. It is qualitatively different from every other programming task. Every other programming task you can define in terms of a criterion. That is, it recognizes faces, or it produces sentences in correct English, or it uh, tells you whether there's a, a flaw in your program, or something like that, and or plays chess. So the criterion is doing that correctly. And the art of writing a program to be an AI, all these are AIs that I've described, is to prevent it from doing the wrong thing so that it homes in on doing the right thing, the, the correct thing. Now, an AGI, there is no specification for an AGI. If you say, uh, for example, uh, uh, a person who chooses not to speak like a a monk in a, in a silent order is still a perfectly conscious being. If they decide not to speak for five years, they haven't stopped being ha- having the property of general intelligence. The property of general intelligence resides in their thoughts, not in their output, not in the relationship between their inputs and their outputs. In fact, they might have no inputs and outputs. It's, uh, supposing there was a religion that said you've got to spend five years in a sensory deprivation tank. The person there would not be any less human. Provided they were doing it voluntarily, I suppose they might go mad if they weren't. But a, a person can perfectly well think without having any inputs and outputs. So a program to do that couldn't be defined in terms of its inputs and outputs. I should say, in regard to the Turing tests, I don't think Turing was aiming to set up a test of whether something's an AGI or not. He he was he wrote a paper in whatever it was, 1950, in which he was arguing that as he put it, computers can think, though he really meant computer programs can think. And he was arguing that that must be so because of what we now call Turing universality. That is, uh, the behavior of any physical system can be uh, represented with arbitrary accuracy a program running on a Turing machine or on what we call a computer. Nowadays, to be perfectly precise we'd have to say on a quantum computer but i don't think quantum has anything to do with um, the g of agi the general intelligence so the imitation game that turing proposed in his paper where a machine pretends to be a person and you converse with it via a teletype machine and then if you can't tell the difference then what reason have you got to believe that uh, that it that uh that thing. What more reason have you got to believe that that thing isn't human uh, or isn't thinking than you do with a human? So that was the argument. It it, it was a thought experiment that formed part of an argument. It was not a, a proposal for a thing which would fifty years later, or whatever we are now, seventy-three years later, be used as a test of whether something's really an AGI. Because as a test, it's completely flawed. Because, for example, a, a real AGI might not might might decide not to participate, and a real judge might decide, as as is happening at the moment, a real judge in a sort of Turing test situation might be gullible and might decide that anything whatever is a is conscious or is thinking. And uh, right back in the in the 1960s when the first such program was written, Eliza, people did indeed think it was conscious, even though it was a program of a hundred lines or so.
0: So with both AI and scientific progress in general, I would describe you as someone who is confident that we will make lots of progress and essentially solve Most, if not all of the problems that we spend time thinking about, one of those problems would be artificial general intelligence. Um, Another one of those problems I would call the problem of consciousness, which is why is there anything it's like to be this set of atoms, right? Why does does it feel like something to be this set of atoms as opposed to the set of atoms in my microphone, which I presume has no subjective interiority nothing it's like no qualia to use a philosophy term you're confident that we are going to solve all of these problems you know assuming we don't destroy civilization or have some extinction event i i'm less confident because it seems to me that human beings don't occupy the highest possible intelligence we just occupy the highest intelligence that exists on earth And it seems to me it would be a remarkable coincidence if the smartest animal on Earth were able to uh, understand and solve every problem. Um, It seems to me like every other animal has an upper bound in terms of the problems it can solve. And so human beings logically should also have an upper bound unless we occupy the highest possible intelligence a being could have, which I think probably we're far from, I don't see why that would be true. So can you defend your optimism regarding our ability to solve the most, you know, quantum gravity, AGI, the problem of consciousness, the other problems that have vexed science uh, and philosophers since time immemorial?
1: Yes. The argument can be labeled the argument from universality. And the universality in question is at two levels, appropriately enough. The low, lower level, as it were, is Turing universality, which we've already mentioned. That is, there is such a thing as a universal computer. We are speaking to each other uh, on very good approximations to universal computers. There is no computation that could be performed by anything in the universe that could not be performed by our computers that are on our desks at the moment, barring only speed and memory capacity. But apart from that, the computers that we, that we use are universal. That wasn't always true. I still remember when scientists went around with slide rules in their pockets, and the slide rule can, could perform certain computations, but not others. But Turing discovered that there is an escape velocity for computation, that there are such things as machines that can perform any computation that could be performed by any other machine, no matter how ingeniously it's built, no matter how many extra types of chip are put in in it. Apart from speed and memory capacity, which in this context is not philosophically important, a universal computer can compute anything. And an argument that says that that computers that we all computers that we've had before all computers that exist in animal brains and whatever all computers that exist in in the in the DNA system inside our cells they've all had a finite and tiny repertoire. What makes you think that our latest technology has an infinite repertoire, an unbounded repertoire? Well, it's because of a feature of the laws of physics, which is. Turing universality. Now, human brains are running a program which, which has Turing universality, but that's not enough to be optimistic about the capacity of the human brain to solve problems, because quite likely there are animals whose brains have uh, are computers powerful enough to have Turing universality. If only we could Input them in the right states. I mean, at the moment, we don't have the technology and it would probably be considered uh, unethical to uh, try to use a dog's brain as a computer. But, uh, but anyway, the, the, it's clear that humans can because humans can, in fact, ex- execute any program that a that computer can execute in, uh, in, in our minds or using a piece of paper. So that is not enough to, to say, solving problems. Now, when it comes to solving problems, we need an additional type of universality, which I have argued must exist, and that is explanatory universality. For explanatory universality, you need Turing universality, but you also need more than that. You need a certain... Turing universality is a matter of hardware. Some hardware has it, some doesn't, and we have attained... That we've attained escape velocity in regard to hardware with, with our computers. Explanatory universality is a property that software may or may not have. And AIs, AI software doesn't have it, but AGI software would have it. Now, how do I know that there aren't levels of AGI software or, or, or of software? So that there's a certain level of generality you can reach and then which can explain a certain range of things but then there's a better program which could reach now this program must be runnable on a turing machine because everything is so we can't guess that there are things we can't explain because it's at a level that our software can't reach because our hardware can't reach because it's only a matter of software and since it's a matter of software let's suppose let's suppose Perhaps the, the best way of explaining this is suppose that there are superior beings on another planet and they come and visit us and we ask them okay well we've been curious about about quantum gravity and about qualia and so on and they say oh yeah well we we understand that and but we can't explain it to you because your brains aren't suitable so uh, we would say well what what would you need to make our brains understand it, they now they couldn't possibly say. Well, either they would say you need more memory and and more speed. Well, we we can have we, we already have prosthetics, as it were, such as pen and pen and pen and paper or computers that can vastly increase our speed. And if we had faster ones, we could make it faster. And faster ones must be possible if that's what the alien's ability depends on. So it can't be that. So then they could say, well, no, it's, it's, not, it's not memory and speed. The only other thing it could possibly be is that your program isn't good enough. Well, what program? Write the program down and we'll execute it the hard way. And then we will understand whatever you have understood the hard way. Well, they might say, well, it will take you all your lives to understand the least thing. Okay, well, make us immortal then that there's nothing fundamental pre- preventing us from imposing an absolute limit on the number of computations we can perform in a lifetime so it can't be that so these hypothetical aliens can't exist they they would violate turing universality and therefore we can assume that we have explanatory universality that's assuming i've assumed in this whole argument what you might call physicalism that the only relevant features of us are that we are physical objects obeying certain laws, laws of nature. Now, it could be that that you postulate supernatural objects that are not uh, subject to laws of nature, but we can rule those out because all of them are bad explanations. So QED, I don't think that that is a flawed argument.
0: All right, David Deutsch. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Your books are the fabric of reality and the beginning of infinity. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation. And if you have anything else you'd like to point my audience towards in terms of your recent work, or website, or Twitter handle, now is the time.
1: Well, you you can anyone who wants to can easily find me by searching for my name. I suppose the spelling D E U T S C H. So just find that. And the only other thing I have to say is it's been really fun talking to you.
0: Likewise, David. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening.